Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's try that again. Good morning, everyone. Hey, if you have quarantined with someone, turn and give them a fist bump. Say good morning. No one else, just them. Well, it's so good to be back in person here at City Church Central. We had an awesome 9 a.m. service. I want to greet all of you who are online. And always, you need to know um, that we are so grateful that you're joining with us. Many aren't comfortable gathering together yet, and so we acknowledge that. But thank you for those that are here with us at City Church Central. This sermon that I'm going to preach this morning is part of a Holy Spirit series that we began several weeks ago to really focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. The subtitle to this morning's sermon is The Holy Spirit, The Comforter Has Come. The Comforter Has Come. Now the context for that um, is kind of set up by an experience that I had several years ago with my father. My father passed away in March and I was there visiting my mom and my dad in Greenville, South Carolina. That's where they retired to. And so I was down visiting mom and dad with my family. And I'm there in the dining room. They kind of had an open dining room that their living room was there. And my dad's in the doorway and he looks at me, he says, Pete, what do you want? And he asked that question. He wasn't looking at me. He was kind of looking around the room. And it dawned on me that my dad was basically saying, what do you want in the house? What do you want to have? Well, you got to know my dad is thoroughly German, very unemotional, and I knew that this was kind of a segue into the fact that he wasn't going to live forever. And so my dad said, well, what do you want? And I said, Dad, you know, honestly, I don't want anything. I really didn't, because here's why. I have my own dining room set. I have my own couch. I have my own chairs. I really didn't want anything. And so I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I, I really don't want anything. And then I looked at him and I could tell he was getting offended because I didn't want any of his stuff. So I said, Dad, okay, I'll take that painting and I'll take that there. And I pointed at two random things. And then he said, good. And I said, well, why are you, I, I thought maybe he was going to tell me he had something and you know, physical, and it was precipitating this conversation. I said, Dad, is everything okay? And he just said, no, Pete, I'm totally fine, but I'm not going to live forever. I said, wow, that was random. And he said, want anything else? I said, no, I'm good. Got everything else. Now, the truth of it is, the reason why I didn't want anything else was I already had what I wanted. I already owned it. He had given it to me years earlier, and this is what I had that I had always wanted. Can you see this? So I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, and these are arrowheads from our farm. Now, the reality of it is, I did not find them. These were actually in a drawer in our home that we had lived in. We lived in a very old farmhouse. 
And I remember one time we were eating a meal together as a family. I'm the youngest of three boys. And my oldest brother, Fred, in the middle of dinner, pointed at this set of drawers, this built-in set of drawers that had been painted so many times that you could tell they hadn't been open in years. And my brother, Fred, looks at the family and goes, I wonder what's in those drawers. And my dad said, why don't you find out? So my brother Fred jumped up from the dinner table, ran downstairs, got a, a putty knife, came up and just started hacking away at the, the outline of these doors that, doors that had been painted shut for all of these years. And finally, one of the doors gives way and opens up and these arrowheads were sitting in there in a, in a cigar box. So we assumed that all of these arrowheads had been picked up on the farm and placed in that cigar box. And in the cigar box as well were some very old pictures of our farm. Some huge snowstorms where the drifts were up to the telephone wires. Thank God I never lived through that, even though we were in Wisconsin, that would be horrible. By the way, my humble opinion is a greater deterrent for the opposite of heaven would be if it was freezing instead of as hot, right? The scripture says it's fiery. If it said minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit, I think, no, anyway, my opinion. But anyhow, back to the arrowheads. So I looked at the, and I mounted these when I was a young boy. I put them all on a board and got them all set up. And years ago, prior to when my dad had that awkward conversation of what do you want from the house, I had gotten this already. So pretty much what I wanted, I already had. But... What ended up happening from that conversation where dad said, what do you want? It began to kind of spark a brief conversation about my dad dying, very brief. And the reality of this morning, what we're gonna look at biblically comes from a conversation that Jesus sparks with his disciples about his pending death. Now, the scriptures we're going to look at, and there's going to be a chunk of them. Normally, I don't do this, but we're going to read a chunk of them very quickly. All of these scriptures come from a three-chapter chunk out of the Gospel of John, all of which comes from a 24-hour period of the life of Jesus. Theologically, it's called the Upper Room Discourse. It's where Jesus has gathered his disciples together. He begins that time by washing their feet, and then what he does after washing their feet, he kind of sits down with his disciples and he turns to Judas and he says to Judas Iscariot, you now need to go and do what you've planned to do. And the scripture says something stunning in the gospel of John. It says, and Satan entered Judas. Horrible scripture. But that spirit enters into Judas. He goes off to betray Jesus. And then through the ensuing conversations, he says to Peter, who's the most verbose of his disciples, the one that's most forceful about his commitment to Jesus, he basically informs Peter, you will deny me three times. And it's in that context that Jesus then shifts the conversation and he says to his disciples, essentially, I'm getting ready to die. And again, the next three chapters, 14 through 17 of the Gospel of John, are what's called the Upper Room Discourse. And it's, if you have a red letter Bible, it's full of red letters. Jesus holds a really a monologue with his disciples about his pending death. And so I want to read just a few of those texts. We're going to read them in a series. So John 14:1 tells us this: Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. 
Then if you were to read on from that's chapter 14, now we move into chapter 15. In verses 15 through 18 and then 25 through 31, Jesus begins to speak directly about his death and his removal from their lives. Here's what he says. Chapter 14, verse 15 and following. If you love me, keep my commandments. By the way, Jesus' commandments were simple. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Reading on, verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. Say the word advocate. Say it out loud. Ready? Advocate. To help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he lives with you and will be in you. We're going to deal with that in just a few moments. Verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Verse 25, all this I have spoken while still with you. But the, there's the word again, advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Verse 28, you heard me say I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad that I'm going to the Father. Now just pause for a moment. Imagine you're with Jesus. You've walked with him for three and a half years. Judas Iscariot has just exited. Jesus just told the most forceful among you that he will betray Jesus three times. And then in the midst of that, Jesus looks at them and said, I'm leaving. And if you really love me, you'd be glad that I was going to exit. And I'd have said, Jesus, nope, not glad. In fact, that's the very thing that I've been nervous about. I don't want you to leave. And yet Jesus is crystal clear. If you love me, you will be glad that I'm exiting to go to the Father. Reading on. He says, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so then when it does, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. I know we have a lot of people that are newer to faith, have never read the Bible before. That's a reference to Satan, the one who opposes God's best in the world, the prince of this world. That's another reference to the devil. The prince of the world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Now let's jump to chapter 16. Verse 13 and following, here's what the scripture says. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine, Jesus says. That is why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. And then last text, John 16, 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Peace. 
In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. If you were to sit down and read that upper room discourse, that last three chapters that Jesus brings in the last 24 hours of his life, you would find that it's inspiring. And the reality of it is, oftentimes, and I don't say this to sound morbid, but if you've ever sat down and spoken with someone who knows they're near the end of their life, or you've been to a funeral, you would discover they can be strangely inspiring. It's really strange. I've noticed pastorally that there are many funerals that I've officiated where when people get done speaking of the person that has passed, people leave inspired to live a better life. It's also true on the other end of life. I've noticed oftentimes at baby dedications, people get inspired. As a matter of fact, I did one yesterday in someone's backyard. There's a family that's part of city. They have a young son that just turned a year old and they wanted to dedicate him to the Lord. So we met on their back porch. They had a very limited number of friends and family there and we dedicated this little young man to the Lord. What was amazing, and I've seen it over and over, is much like when looking at the end of life, in looking at the beginning of life, there were people who were there, specifically the godmother and the godfather. What they said was inspiring, and here's what they said. They said that they feel challenged to live a better life. Because this little guy, as the godfather and the godmother, this little guy will need godly examples. They're gonna need examples in their lives. So much like the end of life conversation, the beginning of life conversation, there's often an inspiring element to it. If you read Jesus's three chapters where he talks about the end of his life, it could be taken as inspiring, really could be. When you think about the end of life, and I was thinking about that inspirational aspect, I thought of a country song and I don't know many of them, if you love country, that's okay. Um, God likes other forms of music better. <laughs> but there's a song by Tim McGraw, My Daughters Love Country. I remembered hearing this song about the end of life and it was so inspiring. It's by Tim McGraw. And the title of the song is Live Like You Are Dying. It's powerful. I'll read some of the lyrics. He said... I was in my early 40s with a lot of life before me, and a moment came that stopped me on a dime. I spent most of the next days looking at x-rays, talking about the options, talking about sweet time. And I asked him that this might really be, I asked him when it sank in, that this might really be the real end, how's it hit you? When you get that kind of news, man, what do you do? And he said, I went skydiving, I went Rocky Mountain climbing, and I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. Now, real quickly, I mentioned I grew up on a farm. We had massive bulls on our farm. And the reality of it is, if you want to get on a bull, help yourself. But I'm not doing that. This guy did, but reading on, and it said, and I loved deeper, I spoke sweeter, I gave forgiveness I'd been denying, and he said, someday I hope you get the chance to live like you are dying. Listen, death can actually be inspirational. 
Here's what we also know. That when it comes to death, the greatest regrets are not what people have done. This has been studied. The greatest regrets at the end of life are the things you didn't risk and were too afraid to do. Isn't that fascinating? That when someone's taking their last breaths, that the things they regret the most are not what they did, it's what they didn't do, what they didn't have the courage to do, what they never risked. But you see, Jesus's three chapters, that narrative that Jesus brings to his disciples, it can be inspiring, but that's not Jesus's point at all. Jesus, when he's speaking in those chapters, brings to us a few things that I want to talk about directly. And when he speaks, the first one and the reason for what he is saying is this, the limitation of being human. Jesus knows the limitations of being human. I experienced this as I was often doing. I I spend the week going over the sermon in my head. It's a, it's a habit that every pastor has. By the way, if I have a conversation with you, it's a good chance it'll become a sermon something. Just kidding. But you find yourself, when you preach a lot, you're always running your sermons in your head. And I was thinking about how Jesus was talking about the limitation of being human. That's why he's bringing what he is as he's talking to, to his disciples about death. By the way, Jesus was limited in his humanness. Now, he wasn't limited totally by his humanness, but humanness limited Jesus to some extent. Jesus referenced that. Now, spiritually, he's able to do whatever God's reality is, but being fully human meant and means that Jesus understood the limitations of being human. So when he talks about his departure, he looks at his disciples and he begins to talk about what we're diving into now, but it was because Jesus understood the limitations of humanness. So this week, I actually had to repair something at my house. It's the third time I've done it and I'm getting tired of fixing it. But we have a nine to 10 inch thick concrete slab over the roof of our garage. That slab is our back deck. Now, it's a 50-year-old piece of concrete, and there's expansion cracks, and when the expansion, it'll move a half inch between the heat and the cold, and when it does that, you get these cracks, water gets down in there, freezes in the winter, and big chunks begin to break off in the spring. So what I did was, I was out there fixing it. And while I'm fixing those expansion cracks and I pry out these big chunks and I'm filling it in and I'm using this quick set concrete and I'm out there, the sun comes up, it's like 90 degrees. It's not drying in 20 minutes, it's drying in 10 minutes. And so now I'm mixing the mortar, I'm trying to stay ahead of all this stuff and I'm sitting there and I thought to myself this thought. Maybe I'm weird, but here's what I thought. I thought this, I wish there were three of me. I wish there was one that could sit here and continue to fill these hold with this quick-set concrete. I wish there's another one that could go to Lowe's and get more quick-set concrete because I'm cheap and I didn't buy enough again. And then I wish there was a third of me that could go into the kitchen get a drink of water because I'm dying of thirst, but I can't stop doing this because the concrete is setting up. And so I literally said out loud, I said, man, I wish there were three of me. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit kind of spoke to my heart about illustrating the idea of humanness. 
It's this. One of the best things we can ever do as a follower of Jesus is come to grips, excuse me, with our humanness. Come to grips with it. Understand what that means as a follower of Jesus. Where we recognize that we are human. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples about their humanness and their need of the infilling of the Holy Spirit, which is where we're headed to next. And yet Peter revolts against that and says, I'll do this and I'll do that. And Jesus says, no, you won't. You're human. You won't. And so understanding our humanness has so much to do with what Jesus is speaking to his disciples about. And listen, in the Older Testament, as you were thinking through, as we were reading those scriptures in John, where Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit coming upon people and the Holy Spirit dwelling in people. When you think about the Holy Spirit in the Older Testament, it's almost as though there was a limitation there as well. Because what you see in the Older Testament is, Almost never is the Holy Spirit mentioned as dwelling in someone. The Holy Spirit came on people in the the Older Testament, but never dwelt in them. And if it does dwell in, it's rare and temporary. Rare and temporary. A classic example in the Older Testament is Samson. So Samson has the Holy Spirit come upon him. He gets this surge of strength. He does superhuman things. And then the Spirit of God leaves him and he goes back to being built like me. I'm convinced that Samson was built like me. He wasn't muscle-bound. When people looked at him, they couldn't believe he could pull off what he was doing. And it was because the Spirit of the Lord came on him. We see the same thing with some of the judges in the Older Testament, the kings in the Older Testament, the prophets in the Older Testament. There was a temporary coming upon them of the Spirit. They would do supernatural things. Then the Spirit would lift off and retract himself. And yet Jesus now in in the Newer Testament is speaking of the fact that in John, he begins to talk about how the Holy Spirit won't just come on you, but will live in you. It's the greatest transition of God from the Older to the Newer Testament other than the incarnation of Christ. It's the greatest move of God where the Spirit of the Lord now is available to anyone who would follow Jesus to live in them. So let's pick up our reading in chapter 16, or chapter 14, verse 16. Here's what Jesus said, just to remind us, we read it earlier. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, what's that word? Advocate, to help you and to be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you. And then what's the next phrase? He will be where? In you. Transition from Older to Newer Testament. The Spirit of God, which is on you, will now live in you. Now, a couple of times when we were reading, the word advocate came up. This is an important word to understand. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit parakletos, It's a unique way of viewing the spirit that Jesus wanted his disciples to know and he wants us to know. The word parakletos is actually a legal term. The closest in our culture would be an attorney. But in Jesus' day, a parakletos was something that a Jewish person would hire to go into a Roman court. 
So here you're Jewish, you don't really understand how the Roman system works, but Rome had conquered all the known area, you're there, you're appearing in a Roman court, and you would hire a parakletos. Para means with, and the other word means to be called to. So with to, called to be with someone. And so when Jesus speaks of the Holy Spirit, he speaks of someone that comes to stand with you, is called to be with you, and in that... That parakletos in the, in the Roman legal system would literally be your guide. They would help you understand things about the Roman court system you didn't know. They would whisper in your ear about what to say, how to respond, what points to move, where to back off. It was actually far more intimate than an attorney. That's a parakletos. And when Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, trouble's coming. And when trouble hits... Never forget, there's a parakletos, and he can guide you into all truth. Remember that word is guide. He'll guide you into all truth, and he won't just be on you, he'll live in you. And then there's John chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus speaking, just to remind us, says, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And then lastly, John chapter 14, verse 27. Here Jesus speaking says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. You know what's stunning about Jesus' statement? He says, My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. One of the reasons why he makes this reference is because there had been a Roman leader who had declared peace for the entire world. It was Augustus Caesar. And he had declared Pax Romana for the entire world, Roman peace. And Jesus shows up and says, I'm going to give you a peace not like the world gives. I will give you a peace. The world's peace, everything has to line up. Rome has to rule, rule you. Everything has to line up absolutely perfectly. And if it lines up perfectly, you'll have peace. Jesus says, it's not how my peace works. I'm going to give you a peace that is unlike any peace that is available in the world. Well, as we put feet to our faith, and we think about Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit, I think there's no better time, no better time in our culture than to be reminded again that the Comforter has come. By the way, the word Comforter is the exact same word for advocate. And so as we think about our lives, we think about things that are in front of us. If you are like I am, you can listen to one news broadcast and agree with that. Then you listen to the next broad, broadcast, you agree with that. You'll read one scientific paper and say, that person knows what she's doing. Then you read the next one and you go, that guy knows exactly what he's doing. And all of it seems to oppose each other. Jesus promises a spirit, a person of a spirit. Spirit is he. He's the parakletos. And he's been brought here to guide us, to live in us. What he does for us isn't circumstantial. It's based upon putting our faith, hope, and trust in Jesus. My concern as a pastor is that many of us in this room or live streaming online, 
that you have sensed that you have lost your peace. You don't know what to do. You don't know where to turn. If that's where you're at, we need an openness to the parakletos. We live in a day where human ingenuity and human strength is relied on way too much, as well as with followers of Jesus. Accessing the Holy Spirit is to admit my humanness, repent of trusting and relying on myself, and then asking the person of the Holy Spirit to fill me, to fill me, to ask God to fill me with his Holy Spirit. I don't understand how it all works. I don't claim to. But I know Jesus made a promise and the Holy Spirit fills by invitation. I know that's how it works. But beyond that, it's a mystery to me. But Jesus guarantees us that no matter what you face, whatever I, whatever I am facing, the parakletos is there for us. So as we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would stand. As we stand together, as Stephen and the worship team begins to lead us in worship, if you're comfortable doing this, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes just for a moment. And as you close your eyes, the Spirit of the Lord might be convicting you that you've been relying on your humanness. If you have been, confess that. Repent of that. Maybe you've lost your peace. Maybe you've been living in the midst of chaos and confusion. Jesus looks at his disciples and said, the Spirit of God is here and available. Access the Spirit. And in the midst of that, he will guide you into all truth. He will bring you the peace of God. Take a few moments as we begin to worship. Stay in a posture of receptivity and humility before God. And invite God's presence, the parakletos of God, to dwell in you and to fill you.